Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 19 is our text this morning, and uh, there should be an outline on your bulletin. There are printed messages uh, at both exits. You can get one now or later if you like, and those should be also on the church website where you can go on your Wi-Fi device if you want and get the um, sermon that way. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible, verses 16 through 19. Paul says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he's seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Christians have probably tolerated no sin more often than the sin of legalism. Some would probably be surprised to hear legalism labeled as a sin. Legalists are viewed as maybe being a little bit overzealous, um, perhaps uh, super spiritual, but they aren't usually viewed as sinning, um, you know, like an adulterer or a thief or that kind of thing. And legalism seems to be trying to promote holiness in the church, and so it's tolerated. Yet the Apostle Paul consistently taught that legalism is an aggressive evil that must be strongly resisted by those who are saved by grace. As you probably know, most of his epistle to the Galatians was written against the legalists, the Judaizers. Uh, Many of his other books contain strong warnings about the sin of legalism. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, for example, Paul uh, mentions certain men who who forbid marriage and abstain from eating from certain foods as if it would make them spiritual. And Paul actually says they're promoting the doctrine of demons. And so he was very clear, legalism is not just a minor little problem, it is a serious sin. Now, in our text, and actually all the way down through verse 23, but I had to break it into halves here, Paul tells his readers that they must strongly resist uh, this legalistic approach of these false teachers. In our text we're covering this morning, verses 16 to 19, there are two commands that are somewhat parallel. In verse 16, he says, "...let no one act as your judge." in regard to certain matters. And then in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, as the New American Standard 
translation. I think it could be better translated, let no one set themselves up as an umpire to pass judgment against you. And so the commands just reinforce one another, saying we have to strongly reject legalism as a way of Christian living. Now, when we come to a term like that, however, we need to define the term because all sorts of things pop up in different people's minds about what legalism is. Some would say, well, legalism is having any rules or commandments. In fact, uh, a few times I've had people tell me that I was legalistic, and when I asked for clarification, they said, well, you teach obedience to the commands of Scripture. And I've said, yeah, so did Jesus Uh, obedience to the commands of Scripture is not um, legalism. The Bible is full of commandments that are for our good. In fact, Jesus said, if you love him, you'll obey his commandments. And so legalism is not uh, the presence of commandments. Then some would say, well, it's the presence of man-made rules or commandments. But again, think about it for a moment. Uh, There are many areas not specifically mentioned in the Bible where we need rules in order for us to function uh, in a peaceable manner as a family or as a church. And so that's not legalism either. So what is it? Well, the heart of legalism is an attitude, and that attitude is taking pride in your obedience to certain standards and commands that you lay on everyone and you judge those who don't keep those standards as you do. The legalist often thinks he's made acceptable to God either for salvation or else for uh, sanctification that uh, by his performance he keeps these rules and invariably the legalist is going to pick things that he can keep. Uh, He doesn't pick rules like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself because none of us attain that in this life perfectly. So he picks other things that he, he can keep and then he lays those standards on everyone else. It's always invariably focused on external conformity, not matters of the heart, as God requires. Uh, Dr. Ryrie, one of my professors in seminary, who was always noted for his brevity, he always told us, I don't want five pages, I want one page. If you can't answer it in one page, you don't understand the issue. But uh, here's his definition of legalism. He says, it's a fleshly attitude which conforms to a code for the purpose of exalting self. Uh, You'll notice that Paul connects our text with the word therefore, and uh, so he's telling these new believers, in light of the fact that Christ has canceled out our certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, as he has just stated, uh, therefore, that law, he says, was just the shadow, and Christ is the substance, so why are you putting yourself under the shadow of the ceremonial laws of Judaism and all of that which were fulfilled in Christ. And his point is, we don't grow as a Christian by keeping all of those laws and checking them off our list. 
rather we grow by holding fast to Christ. So to sum it up, he's saying that we grow as Christians by rejecting legalism and by holding fast to Christ as the head of his body, the church. External kind of religion always leads to pride. And holding fast to Christ as the head leads to the growth of the body in love, as Paul mentions here. So first of all, let's look at the fact that we must reject legalism as a way of Christian living. And I use the word reject to make the point. We need to see this as an aggressive evil and stand opposed to it, not tolerate it in the body. And most of us have been in legalistic churches Uh, Legalists are never content to just live to themselves. They always want to impose their rules on the whole church. And they check off and judge everyone by their their man-made standards and their um, uh, system. And they try to bring everybody into submission to their way of living. And it's a subtle tool of Satan because on the surface it looks like they're trying to promote holiness... But in reality, they're promoting pride, as I've already mentioned. It's based on the flesh. And it leads people away from from trusting Christ and dealing with the heart to trusting self and, and emphasis on the outward. That's at the heart of it, and that destroys the church. So I want to make three observations about legalism here that I hope will help you understand this issue better so that we can all resist it. First of all, legalism judges spirituality by external conformity to certain rules. Uh, Verse 16 and verse 18 both emphasize these false teachers had set themselves up as judges. And anyone who doesn't follow their rules isn't spiritual And their rules apparently included some of the Old Testament dietary regulations, which Jesus declared all foods clean, so those were fulfilled in him. They probably added to it, though, because there aren't very many Old Testament regulations about drink. And Paul mentions uh, how they uh, judge you in regard to food or drink, So maybe they took some of the Nazarite vow, which said you couldn't drink any wine, and added that to their list. Uh, We don't know for sure. And then he mentions festivals and new moons and Sabbath days. That refers to the festivals were the three annual feasts that all Jews had to go up to Jerusalem to observe. The new moons were the monthly celebrations, and the Sabbath, of course, was the weekly observance of the seventh day. God ordained those special occasions to point forward to Christ who fulfilled them. Paul calls them a shadow of what is to come in verse 17, and then he says, but the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, Christ came to fulfill the law, and thus all of those regulations and so on are no longer uh, obligated on believers. Now, that raises a thorny question. There are a number of Christians who argue that Sunday is now the Christian Sabbath and that we must observe it as the Jews observe Saturday. There's a few, of course, who say Saturday is still the day, 
And uh, not only Seventh-day Adventists, but there are some Seventh-day Baptists, believe it or not. Uh, And they try to observe that day in a um, very strict fashion. Um, Some, I have read articles on this, would say that you sin if you think about or talk about anything secular or worldly on the Sabbath, on Sunday. And so, for example, if you go back to the fellowship time after our service here and you're sipping coffee and you say to someone, wow, what about that Super Bowl last week? You have sinned by bringing up the subject. And even worse, you sinned if you actually watched that game last Sabbath day. Uh, That's a no-no. You don't do that sort of thing. You don't read the Sunday paper. You don't think about sports. Uh, and all of that is out of bounds for these people who believe in that. And they add other things. If you're driving home from church and you go by the market and realize, whoops, we're out of milk, and swing in there to pick up a gallon of milk, you sin. If you go out to dinner after church with a group of people, you sin because you're forcing others to work on the Sabbath, the restaurant personnel. And these books, and I've read them, they go on and on with prescribing what you can and cannot do on Sundays. Now, I would say if we're required to observe Sunday as a Christian Sabbath, then Paul was certainly confusing his Gentile audience by saying, don't let anyone judge you about these matters, and he doesn't clarify. Of course, Sunday is now the day. He he just goes on. And uh, when you look in the New Testament, there is a command that says we're not to forsake assembling ourselves together, Hebrews 10.25. You read the book of Acts, and it indicates that the early church gathered on the first day of the week, Uh, for their worship time, for their assembly. Um, Sunday in Revelation 1.10 is called the Lord's Day, which would indicate it's a special day for the Lord. Uh, Hebrews 4, I believe, teaches that we have achieved our Sabbath rest when we trust in Christ as our Savior, that he fulfilled that. And I would even say we can extrapolate a principle from The creation narrative, and I have a sermon on that if you want to read it sometime, but uh, in Genesis 2, where God rested on the seventh day, I think there's a principle there that would show us that it is wise for us to take one day a week, stop doing our normal thing, and um, enjoy time off and time with the Lord's people. Beyond that, though, there are simply no direct Sabbath day commands, Sunday commands for us who are in Christ. But legalists like to take whatever the rule, extra biblical rule, and they can judge others by those rules, and uh, they don't judge by how is your heart before the Lord, which the Bible emphasizes. And so, for example, you could have a man who keeps all the rules And he secretly is enslaved to pornography, and uh, he's greedy, but he keeps the rules. And so everyone judges him as spiritual. They aren't judging his heart, and he's not judging his heart 
before God. And Jesus strongly indicted the Pharisees for that very kind of behavior. Outwardly, oh, they look good. But Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You know, on the outside, looks clean and pretty, but inside is full of dead man's bones and all sorts of uncleanness. And God looks on the heart, and Jesus uh, reamed out the Pharisees. He said, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. So that's the first thing about legalism. It's this external kind of thing. A second thing, legalists never keep the whole law, but invariably they pick certain laws to keep or observe, and then they use those to judge other people. Uh, These false teachers in Colossae were concerned about food and drink and Jewish festivals. They had commands, we'll see down in verse uh, uh, 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, but they're filled with pride and they're indulging in the deeds of the flesh. Jesus pointed out again, The same thing with the Pharisees, and in Matthew 23, the entire chapter is taken up with him reaming out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, but here's just one verse, verse 23 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus didn't beat around the bush, did he? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, a type of spice, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So, you know, they they tithed their table spices and made sure everyone saw that they tithed their table spices so they could take pride in that, but here they weren't dealing with matters of the heart. Uh, I think in many churches, you've probably been in them, I have, legalists will judge people who smoke or drink wine. They'll judge people in our day now who have tattoos or that kind of thing, outward stuff that they can see. Uh, Some churches will judge women for wearing makeup. Uh, I went to a church once where the women didn't wear makeup, but they didn't shave their legs either, and they wore nylons, and it really looked gross. I mean, all that hair against the nylons. I remember... I was just a boy, and I still remember that going. And uh, when I was in seminary, they had assigned seats for us so that they could take attendance in chapel. And the guy that sat next to me after we got acquainted and became friends, he later confided and said, you know, I didn't think you were a Christian when I first met you. And I said, really, why not? And he said, you had a mustache. And the truth was, I would have had a full beard, but the seminary didn't allow it because I've always had trouble shaving with my skin being sensitive, but um, the seminary president told me personally that it would cost the seminary $50,000 in support if they allowed me to have a beard. And so they didn't do it, catering to the legalists. Uh, My dad went to a very well-known Bible institute, I won't name it, but... um, There was a student, he was a senior there, about to graduate, and they were coming back from some function on the school bus, and he was in the back of the bus, and he had his arm around his fiancée, and some dear old legalistic saint driving behind the bus reported him to the president, who got up in chapel, kicked the student out of school, didn't allow him to graduate because he had put his arm 
around his fiancée on the back of the bus. So it's that kind of legalism, and invariably, legalists do not judge their own pride. They don't judge sins like gossip. They don't judge sins like racial prejudice, all sorts of things. Uh, and yet they, they put their standards on everyone else. They pick their certain laws that they can keep and then judge everyone else by those laws. And then thirdly, related to all of that, legalism always stems from and leads to pride. That's at the root of it. Notice verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, on the surface, you might say, well, that's not a hard verse. But every commentator I read said that is the most difficult verse in the entire epistle of Colossians to interpret. And some said it's one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament to interpret because virtually every phrase or word is, is disputed. So let me try and simplify it and walk you through it. The first difficulty is what does Paul mean by let no one keep defrauding you of your prize? Probably he's using here an athletic metaphor, and he's saying that these false teachers set themselves up as self-appointed judges, and they make their own rules, and then they say, you're out of bounds, and throw you out of the game because you didn't keep their rules. That's the picture behind it. Uh, they may have said you aren't saved. They may have said you you're lost your rewards in heaven or whatever, but they're self-appointed judges is the idea, and they aren't judging by the word of God. They're judging by their own rules. The second problem is the phrase delighting in self-abasement. And the word self-abasement is the word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament for humility. In fact, Paul will use it in a positive sense in chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, but here, I think Paul is being sarcastic, and what he is saying is, that these false teachers um, take pride in their own humility. Oh, I'm so humble, you know, kind of thing. And uh, he might be referring to the um, ascetic practices that they denied themselves certain things, things that the Bible didn't forbid. They took pride in keeping their dietary rules and, and their observances of these religious special days. And they judge everybody who doesn't buy into their standard and do it their way. So uh, they're proud about their humility. Now, the main interpretive difficulty, <clears throat> of which there are many, many pages in the commentaries, is what was their worship of angels? And I'm not going to give you all the different views. We'd be here all day. I think maybe the most plausible view is they were calling on the angels as a means of warding off evil spirits. And they were doing that to the extent that Paul's saying they're virtually worshiping the angels. Also, they may have been using their false humility to say, well, we aren't righteous enough to go into God's presence, so we have to go through angels. And in doing so, they're undercutting, of course, the uh, work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our mediator into God's holy presence. Now, Paul adds... <clears throat> that these false teachers, and he uses a singular here, um, taking his stand, but I think he's just probably speaking generically. 
you know, any and all false teachers. Taking his stand, he says, on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So maybe they were saying, oh, I had a vision of angels, and here's what happened, or that kind of thing. And they're all puffed up with pride over their visions. It's kind of ironic. You remember in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, he won't even talk about himself in the first person. I knew a man once, he says, 14 years ago. And he was caught up to heaven. I don't know whether in the body or out of the body. God knows. And then he tells about this vision that he had of being caught up into heaven. But he does it very sketchily, almost apologetically. And, um, you know, you think in our day, if if that had happened, first he would have written a book. and, And then he would have gone on the talk show circuit telling everybody about how glorious this vision was. And, and Paul instead said, because of the vision, God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. And he, he wouldn't even talk about it. And uh, the point is, legalists don't seek to exalt God. They exalt themselves and take pride in themselves. And they operate in the flesh and not in the spirit. And they take pride in outward conformity, not the heart, because none of our hearts are are right before God. They're proud about their own humility. And um, when you can know you're growing in godliness when you're aware more and more of your own propensity to sin. I, I really believe that. The more I grow in the Lord, the more I realize, oh man, I am so weak and vulnerable <clears throat> and the flesh is so strong and that keeps you clinging to the Lord more tightly. So you grow in him. And I've never read a godly old man who died saying, you know, oh, the flesh is no problem. I remember reading George Mueller as an old man used to pray, Lord, keep me from becoming an ungodly old man. And if you've ever read the story of George Mueller, you think, huh? Come on, George. You know, he was one of the most godly men who I've ever read about, but he knew his heart. And so Paul is saying, first of all, reject legalism as a way of Christian living. Now, there's another implication here, and that is that Christians must hold to Christ as the head of his body, the church. And I'm stating positively what Paul says negatively here about the false teachers in verse 19. He says, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Now, as we've seen, throughout Colossians, Paul shows the supremacy, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's the point of the whole letter. Christ is all in all. He is what we need. Uh, Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said also that Christ is the head of his body, the church. And so, Holding fast to Christ as the head is the key to growth, which is from God. And there are four implications here. First of all, holding fast to Christ as the head means not being enamored with things other than Christ. See, these false teachers, Paul says, they're caught up with the shadow and not with the substance, not with the reality, which is Christ. 
They're into all kinds of rules, but they aren't into Christ. And, you know, it would be like maybe you admire some famous person and you've read all about him and you've studied his life and you've watched movies about him and so on. And one day you get to meet him and you go, oh, wow, look at his shadow. Isn't that cool? And he's standing right here and you're not looking at him. You're just, you know, admiring his shadow. I mean, it's crazy. You know, Paul's saying Christ is the reality. And these guys are so caught up with the ceremonial aspects of the law. And all of those laws were pointing forward to one thing, Christ, Jesus Christ. But they're hugging his shadow and they're missing Christ himself. Now, we tend to laugh at that and say, boy, that's stupid. But, you know, it's easy to do the same thing. Let me use a couple of examples. Our number one priority should be to worship God. John MacArthur has an excellent book, The Ultimate Priority About Worship. But, you know, it's easy to get caught up with being worship-centered and not God-centered. And you see it with all the worship wars that go on in churches. Well, I like choruses. I like hymns. I like this. Oh, I don't like that. What about the Lord? (laughs) Did we come to meet with the Lord or did we come to deal with all the outward stuff? You see, the point of worship is to be God-centered. And, yeah, some things may hinder that and some things may enhance that. But we need to be God-centered. Another example. I've seen Christians who get into studying the Bible, and I am 100% in favor of studying the Bible, uh, as I think you know. But you can study the Bible wrongly, where you get puffed up with pride. And you see it with guys that they're always right. And boy, they love to get in an argument and prove the other side wrong. And, you know, and, and they, they get boastful about what they know. They know a little Greek, and so they can quote you the aorist tense of the subjective verb and blah, 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 all this stuff. And the point of Bible knowledge is to know Christ. It's to know Jesus and to grow in love for God. And if it's not taking us there, then we're hugging the shadow. And we're not in the substance. The substance of it is to know Jesus Christ and come into submission to him. So to grow as a Christian, hold fast to Christ. Yes, please, study the scriptures. But not so you can boast in your arguments and your great knowledge It's so that it will humble you before Jesus Christ so that you love him with all your heart for what he did for you on the cross. And uh, the Bible isn't there so we can prove our theories on this and that, especially we get caught up with secondary doctrines and have arguments about prophecy and and the spiritual gifts and all that stuff. And I, I do believe those are important things to study, but they're to lead us to Christ, to know him. So holding fast to Christ then means don't be enamored with other things. Secondly, holding fast to Christ as head means beginning and then maintaining a living union with him. Paul uses the analogy of members of the body joined to the head and holding to him. You know, if a person doesn't have an arm and you take an arm and tape it onto him, it ain't going to work. It's got to be organically joined to his body 
so that the life of the body flows into the arm and the arm is connected to the head which gives the commands and so on. And becoming a Christian is more than just attending church and it's more than going through the outward motions of Christianity and keeping a bunch of religious rules. Becoming a Christian is fundamentally being joined to Jesus Christ as your living head, as your Savior and Lord. You are like the vine and the branches, John 15. Here, you're like the body uh, uh, joined to the head. And so you don't just join a church when you become a Christian. You join Christ. You're joined to him. Now, the implication here is that to continue with Christ requires some responsible action on our part. We have to hold to the head. There's one sense in which, yeah, we're joined to Christ and we can't be severed from him, but there's responsibility involved. Uh, the Bible often uses the analogy of marriage, and on Valentine's Day, this is appropriate, I guess. Uh, Ephesians 5 compares marriage to our relationship to the Lord. Well, about 42 years ago, next month, I was joined legally in marriage to Marla, and it was a wonderful thing, and it still is. But you know, that exclusive relationship we began then doesn't run on autopilot. It has to be maintained, and that requires getting to know her. That means I spend time with her. It means I understand her. I learn what pleases her and try to do it. I have to reject temptations that other women might present because I am bound to her in love. And so it's a process that requires effort and commitment on our part. And it's the same with the Lord. You become a Christian. You're joined to Christ. You're one flesh with him, so to speak. But then that has to grow. And it grows as you resist temptations to other things. It grows as you learn what pleases the Lord and so on. A third thing, first it means holding to Christ means not being enamored with other things. Secondly, it means beginning and then maintaining that relationship with Christ, living union with him. Thirdly, holding fast to Christ as head means submitting to him as Lord. And that's implied in the very idea of the head. The head, your brain, gives the commands and your body responds. And if your brain gives a command and your body doesn't respond, you've got a problem there. Um, it is to be responsive. The body is to be responsive to the head. And Jesus is the Lord of the church. And that means he gives the commands, the orders, and we are to respond. There's this crazy idea in the evangelical church, and I really think it is missing the heart of the gospel, that says, well, you can accept Jesus as your Savior now, but accepting him as Lord is kind of an optional thing for down the line. You know, I mean, it's a good thing. But, you know, you, you trust Christ now, and you get your fire insurance policy from hell, and, and then you can kind of be a nominal, occasional Sunday Christian where if you're not doing anything better, you show up at church and you go through the motions as a Christian. And they try to assure you, well, that decision you made in Sunday school to accept Jesus into your heart or in camp or wherever, that gets you in the door. That's your fire insurance policy. 
and then hopefully you'll live for him, but if you don't, you'll still go to heaven. I think that's a damnable lie. Uh, You know, you can receive Jesus, pray a prayer. It doesn't mean you're saved. It doesn't mean you're converted. Receiving Christ truly means you accept him as Savior and Lord. You follow him. You, you seek to obey him. Now, it's a lifelong process. But we saw back in Colossians 1.23, the evidence of being truly reconciled to Christ, Paul said, is you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 9, Paul um, warns us, don't be deceived, he says, because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there are many, many other texts I could take you to if we had time, but we're not holding fast to Christ as head if our lifestyle is one of disobedience. It should be one of growing obedience to Christ as we walk with him. So holding fast to Christ as head means don't be enamored with other things. It means in the second place, beginning... And then maintaining a living union with him. Thirdly, it means submitting to him as Lord. And then finally, holding fast to Christ as head means being a part of his body, uh, a functioning, growing body, the church. Verse 19 makes it clear that being a Christian is not just an individual matter. Now, certainly, individually, you have to come to faith in Christ and believe in him. But then when you do, you are joined not just to Christ, but to his body, the church. And Paul is saying here, the the body grows when every member in dependence on the head is also in interdependence with the other members. He uses the analogy of the joints and ligaments in our body that hold our body together. We live in a culture, our American culture, that militates against this idea We kind of have the rugged individualism syndrome in America. You know, it's me and God. And the church is kind of out there secondarily. Um, And I think it's reflected in an attitude. The attitude is this. I attend FCF. And the idea is on Sundays, if you're not doing anything better, You show up at church, kind of like you show up once in a while at the theater, and you come in, you greet a few folks you may know. Hi, how you doing? Good, thanks. Sit down. You watch the show. You go home, and you're not involved with other Christians throughout the entire week. Now, I'm going to tell you that is not New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is being involved beyond the surface, below the surface, with brothers and sisters in Christ, where our lives are being knit together in love, where we are growing to know each other and help each other and pray with each other and support each other and uh, all all of that, warn each other sometimes. It's no accident that Paul mentions the body here in the context of false teachers because invariably, False teachers, the cults, prey on straying Christians who aren't connected with the body. They're, they're weak. They don't know any better. Along comes a group, 
and they offer love, and this person isn't experiencing a lot of love in the church, and they get sucked off into false doctrine. So to grow with a growth that is from God, we have to be committed to the body as well as to Christ, to growing together, to encouraging and strengthening one another. So Paul's message here is down with legalism, but up with Jesus Christ and up with his body, the church. If you sense you're not growing as a Christian, consider, are you rejecting legalism? Or could you have slipped into it? It's kind of a default mode. If you aren't careful, you get into it. Um, And perhaps you're not holding fast to Christ as the head of his body, the church. So let me just wrap it up with two concluding applications. First of all, don't mistake liberty for license. You know what I mean? Rejecting legalism doesn't mean, hey, just go out and live like the world. That's not the point. Um, Sometimes I've read books by even well-known Christian authors that make it sound like if you reject legalism, you're into kind of a hang-loose, go-with-the-flow kind of lifestyle. The, The New Testament is clear that it is not freedom to sin, we are free not to sin as Christians. And uh, it's not legalism to obey Jesus Christ. And last time I checked, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And so there's nothing legalistic about saying no to sin and yes to holiness. That's godliness. The second application is don't replace reality with rules. Reality with rules. I have heard Christian leaders again try to get everybody to make a vow to read the Bible and pray for just five minutes a day. How many will vow to do that? Well, I am all for reading the Bible and praying every day, okay? I would encourage you to do that, but don't make a vow to do that. I just think that's the wrong approach to Christian living. And you know what happens? You can get legalistic about your quiet time. I read the Bible and prayed seven times last week. Aren't I spiritual? That's not the point. Did you meet with Christ? Did you walk with Christ on the heart level? Did you love the Lord? Did you worship the Lord? You know, did you obey him? All of those things are what matter. And reading the Bible in prayer is is a means to that. But if it becomes a means to boasting in, you know, man, I'm spiritual. I had my quiet time seven times last week. You're, You're off track. You're into legalism. And that's not the way to godliness. So I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. Reject legalism. Hold to Christ. Amen. That's it. That's what Paul's saying. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this portion of your word. Very practical for all of us because we're all prone to boast in the flesh. I pray if anyone is here who has never embraced the living, loving Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross so that sinners might have eternal life as your free gift, that they would come to him today and realize that being a Christian is not a matter of 
external keeping of rules, but of a heart that is reconciled to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who died for sinners. We thank you that your gift is free. I pray that each of us would individually judge our propensity to legalism, that we would reject it in this body, the church here, and that we would focus on loving you with all our heart and loving one another from the heart in order that Christ would be exalted in this church. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.